Hello, and welcome back to the Legends podcast with me, Sarah Faruya of SF Creative and Sarah Faruya Coaching, where I am rising like a phoenix from the ashes after a one year break to season seven, where our theme is Legends of Reinvention, Stories of Renaissance, and the Phoenix Rising from the Fire. I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. So let's get into these creative musings from Sarah and her guests. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this. It's season seven of the Legends podcast, and I have a great, great influencer in Tokyo here today. It's Sam Gilbert. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Absolutely delighted to have you. And thank you for having me on your show about a year ago. I think it was exactly a year ago, actually. It was around Christmas time. So the theme is reinventions, renaissance and phoenix rising from the fire. And Sam is a sports person. And as a sports person, one has to keep rising, reinventing as your body changes and morphs and the, the sport. And you have to respond to the needs of whatever sport you do as well. But there's also so many interesting stories to hear from Sam today. So first of all, I'd like to say your introduction. Are you ready, Rockstar? <laughs> yes, please. Okay, so Sam was born and raised in Australia and has been living in Japan for the past 19 years. Walking into a karate dojo at the age of eight was a pivotal moment as it not only sparked an interest in martial arts, but also Japanese culture and physical health and performance. These three aspects have guided Sam's career from an international level karate competitor to a physiotherapist through to business owner as a co-founder of Club 360, Tokyo's premier health and fitness facility. So it's just brilliant to have him here. I've been a client of Club 360. I've celebrated with them. I know that they just do an amazing amount of work for both the expat community here and also the local Japanese community. It's really fun to have another karate person here because if you go back to episode four we had Nick Petas here who is about 10 years your senior I think in this world so it's so interesting to hear what the next generation did in in karate and and what your story sounds like as well so Sam my first question for you is what is a reinvention story that you have admired or had a big impact on you yeah, so when I was uh, reading through these uh, questions that you sent me, yeah, like like a lot of things, you think, oh gosh, I can't think of anything, and then ended up thinking a bit more about it, and I actually got three that, that come to mind, and one of them is actually related to Nick and similar people to him that um, have basically come from overseas and trained in karate in Japan and made that sort of reinvention from karate student, which is what I was when I was admiring these people, to top-level fighters. So, you know, Nick was one very prominent one at the time. I know in your interview with him, he mentioned that, you know, he was the second person to do Muscle Yama's Uchideshi program. The first person who was a year his senpai was Judd Reed, who was actually a really good friend of mine uh, back in Australia. It's a small world like that. And uh, and actually, you know, in the, I guess it was the mid 2000s, I actually reconnected Nick and Judd together because I guess they lost contact in the mid 90s. And then, like, if unless you're going to become a pen pal with someone in the mid-90s, you don't stay in contact, right? And then we had this social media in the sort of late 2000s where you could sort of start looking people up from your past, but not everyone was doing it. So I actually sort of reintroduced those two on a 
a group chat and it's like, no, you know, Nick and Judd, you guys should probably catch up. You've got plenty, plenty to catch up on. That was one sort of group of people that, that really inspired me in terms of um, reinvention at, at that stage in my life where I was starting to, to become quite serious about karate and, and thinking about you know, what, what do I need to do to take the next step. And so even as a kid, like I don't know how old I was exactly, but probably around 10 or so, I had these dreams and visions of going to Japan and studying in the homeland and and doing what you know guys like Nick and Judd had done and become like top level you know, superstar fighters. That was one. The second is actually the reinvention that a lot of action movie stars made. The Van Dams, the Chuck Norris's, the Schwarzeneggers went from being athletes, you know, especially in Arnie's case, he went from being very, very successful bodybuilder multiple world champion bodybuilder to then make that that transition into movies and then obviously later into to politics, which was you know, after the, the time that I became interested in that whole reinvention, particularly with Chuck Norris, because he was a real competitor. He was a, 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 an American karate champion, very different type of karate to what I did. But then he was able to use his fame in martial arts, as well as, you know, the physiques, not so much Chuck, but, you know, Van Damme and Dolph Lundgren was probably another one because he was actually from the same style. He was from you know, Kyokushin. He actually is an honorary, I think, fourth or fifth down in our organization and still is quite active. He does demonstrations at our world tournaments and things like that. So these guys really inspired me that you could go from being a martial artist to you know, a martial arts competitor or, or some other type of athlete, but then use that physicality to make a, a much bigger presence and and uh and, and I don't know I think I probably went through a stage where I was like oh, I'm gonna first of all go to Japan and become a champion and then maybe I'll become a movie star that sort of faded as I grew into closer to the teen years and realized it probably wasn't realistic but but yeah. that was a story of reinvention that I really only really just thought of uh yesterday that's probably something that inspired me early on probably the most in- inspirational one though was uh was my father so my dad is 88. I'm 42, to give you a bit of perspective. My mum's uh, 74. I've got three older siblings from my dad's first marriage in their late 50s, early 60s, and then my younger brother is 37. And my dad's got 11 grandkids. The 12th is on its way, on her way. We <laughs> know it's a her, not an it, from my younger brother. And I think he's got 10 great grandkids, the oldest of which is 16. He's obviously done a lot sort of family wise, but also professionally, and I was talking to mum and dad about this because I just wanted to have an idea of the timeline and when he made those reinventions. So I was sort of chatting about the chatting about this with him last night, but he, he started off in education. He was a primary school teacher, and then he sort of specialized more in, in art education and ended up lecturing at a teacher's college in art education. But when he was doing his sort of primary school teaching, he was, you know, he spent some time working in rural areas of Australia. And he was by a dam or a creek at, at some stage. And, and he realized that there was clay forming around this creek. He just sort of liked the idea of clay and what you could do with it and, and using that to you know, create art, you know, molding clay to create art. And so he started to get really into it and, and studied pottery at a very high level, started doing pottery quite a lot alongside his education work. And it got to a certain stage where he, it was, he you know, some of these stories I'm just hearing for the first time yesterday, but he was expecting a big promotion with his, when he, within his school and he didn't get the promotion. And he's like, oh, okay, well, I'll keep going with this. And a colleague said, well, you're really, you're doing a lot with the pottery. 
and getting quite well known for it. Could you maybe go into that professionally? And and Dad was like, oh, you know, is there enough money? Can I get support to do that? And he said, you know, the Victorian government are actually granting international scholarships for artists. And so Dad applied for this and he got that scholarship. So he uh, ended up traveling overseas. And then over the course of the next few years, he, he he just went professionally into pottery and he was he became well-known and good enough and, and um, did, I think he said, over 50 international ex- exhibitions, including you know, London and New York and everywhere in the world. That was sec- sort of his, his second career, although he sort of describes that all as one little sort of block of his life. And then he got to a stage where he was having some neck issues and had some fairly severe neck pain, had surgery. And this was obviously 20 odd years before he gave birth to a son who would end up becoming a physio. Um, so I wasn't there to help him at this time. <laughs> but the pottery side actually became more difficult. So he wasn't able to pot anymore. So he started training other potters to pot and, and he opened up a store and then actually had to open up a bigger factory because he was uh, getting so much craft being made. That sort of was the next evolution of his business where he was sort of, he was training potters. And then while he was building a, a sort of second site for his, his pottery creation, in order to build that, he needed bricks. And he, he came across this company that, was, that had a, 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 a large amount of bricks that he basically bought, he said like a million bricks or something that he bought for very, very, very cheap. And he's like, well, I've got all these bricks now. Maybe I, I need to build something else with the bricks. And he decided to build a um, a motel and conference center. So that was basically where the the, the land where we lived, where, where we grew up, was where they had the conference center. Um, our house was separate, but he, yeah, he built this massive motel and, and conference center. And, uh, and then he was overseas and he met someone in the beer business that wanted to expand their operation into Australia. He was in London when he met this person. So he ended up opening Australia's first ever microbrewery on this same property. And then he had a friend who was into royal tennis. Not many people know about royal tennis. It's a, it's sort of like a, a cross between squash and tennis. It's played indoors and you hit on the, the walls. And, and it's, a, it's a quite an interesting game. But Dad ended up building one of the very few royal tennis courts in Australia. He ended up getting awarded a medal, an Australian medal of for contribution to sport later on in life. For that, basically, we, we built our. Uh, I, did, I didn't. Know. My parents built uh, the house on this sort of land where the the motel and conference center was, and uh, it was basically a palace. The kids would come over to play, and it just looked like a castle. It was a, a huge place, and. They sold the home family home in 2011, then got turned into a married uh, a wedding reception venue. It was sort of set up for that. It was just it was the right type of property. Funnily enough, my brother and his wife ended up getting married there. They sold the place in 2011. He was married. He was supposed to be married in March 2020, which we went down for, and that got cancelled two days before. He ended up getting married in February 2021. So I guess 10 years after we sold it, I went back and, and got married on that same property where we grew up, which was amazing. Unfortunately, we weren't able to go because of COVID. Then at that stage, so he gradually moved out of that and then made his transition into bottled uh, mineral water. So this was, I guess, sort of uh, late 80s, early 90s. And you know that was at the stage where bottled water, why, why the fuck would you do that? You can get it from the tap. 
but obviously that took off and, and you know is now a normal thing. He had a, a bit of property outside, some some bush property outside of our home city in Ballarat in Australia. And he was walking through there with a, a, a colleague one day. And then the colleague said, look at that water. Look at the color of that water. That's It's got a certain tint to it. I don't know how he had knowledge of this, but he said, I think you've actually got a spring on your property. He realized that he did have a spring on his property. He actually looked uh, around the, the area for different areas of property that had springs on them and ended up being able to access a, a spring that was I don't know how springs work, but it was a very productive <laughs> spring. Yeah. I was able to get enough, you know, get, get water out of that. Um, and uh, basically for that time, he was Australia's, his company was Australia's leading independent bottled mineral water company. And he, and then he basically, that was the sort of third reinvention. So he'd gone from educator to, to artist, to art educator, to going into more tourism and, and hospitality, and then going into, I guess, sort of manufacturing and sales in terms of water. For me, that's sort of the, the most inspirational reinvention story. And talking to my mum about it yesterday, she said, you know, the thing with daddy is that just he was just fearless in terms of business. He would see an opportunity and just go for it. I think that I've inherited a bit of that from him. I see opportunities and and, and I just sort of go for it. It's a fascination with with trying things and seeing what 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 works and what sticks. And then I think I've also got his work ethic as well. He was a very hard worker, and I think I've inherited that. So um, that, sorry, went and dragged on for a lot longer than you probably expected for your first question. But, yeah, that's. No, that didn't drag on at all. It's absolutely fascinating. And I was not, when you said, oh, and there was a few extra bricks left over, so we built, and I thought you were going to say a kiln. Built a motel, yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. It, it started with a kiln. He needed, the, yeah, yes. <laughs> but, yeah, initially it started with bricks for a kiln. Wow. Okay. So I just want to make a few comments about that. That's amazing. What an absolute treat to listen to your dad's story. Mm -hmm. And I'm so happy that you also got to listen to it yourself and ask them about it. And you were saying that you would only heard, you'd heard uh, only hearing some of these things for the first time. And I really love that about stories and passing things on through the generation. It's so important to tell these stories. And that's part of why I have my podcast and why I love other people's podcasts as well. Mm. I love the clay metaphor as well. I mean, clay itself is a, is something that reinvents because it goes from being this sludge to being these beautiful pieces that you you talked about. But I'm also putting in mind, and I'm a former recovering Catholic, and one of the songs that we used to sing at church is Abba Father. And it says, Abba Father, you are the potter and we are the clay. How wonderful is that? And Dolph Lundgren as well. I think he had a strong connection to Australia as well, right? Dolph studied uh, at Sydney Uni in, I think, 1980, 1981, and he he competed in our national championships and and smashed everyone, uh, won won the heavyweight division very easily. He was he was a legitimate fighter in his day. If he didn't go down sort of the acting path, he he, he could have been one of the yeah one of the best ever. Yeah, love that. And the reason I know that is because I'm a huge fan of Grace Jones. And, you know, I was brought up with her and she was his partner for a long time when he was studying in Sydney and so on. Because he, I think he studied engineering or something like that. He did, yes. Yeah. I mean, what, again, I love that you've reminded me of these reinventions and what's possible for people as well. So dreams and visions as well. I really enjoy that you mentioned the word there's dreams, but then there's also visions. So you dream things up, but then actually being able to see it ahead of you. 
then you can move towards it if you can hold that vision. I I really love that. It's really funny because there's so much kind of spirit present here for me right now, but that's totally not what you're kind of, how you present usually. <laughs> like it's very interesting. I feel, I had goosebumps all over my body when you were telling that story. I was like, oh, Sam's bringing the magic. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm a science lady. I'm a big science lady as well, because I study human biology and human psychology. I also feel that like, oh, my God, all this stuff that's coming, just kept coming, coming, coming. This amazing story of your dad's. What's your dad's name? John. Shout out to John Gilbert. All right. So <laughs> why don't you tell me a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing? You've already touched on it. What was your earliest reinvention, do you think? I was listening to um, Lance's podcast with you on it this week, and I heard a little bit about it in there and, you know, how you were, you've got these two different families in play. How interesting. But why don't you tell me a bit about your background? Where we grew up is a, a town or city of about 100,000 people It's called Ballarat. It's about uh, 100 kilometers northwest of Melbourne. And we, I guess, for a lot of my upbringing, we, fairly well off, um, especially for a town of that size. Our house was the biggest house definitely at that time in the city. It was, you know, like I said, a, a palace and my parents were doing, you know, very well. And I'd say that I've talked my dad up a lot, but um, my mum was also an amazing woman as well. And she, especially with the um, the motel, she worked incredibly hard in terms of, um, you know, working with him to, to you know, build that business up. We had the uh, luxury of, of traveling and, and we traveled sort of traveled along with some of dad's business trips overseas. We spent a fair bit of time in, in the UK and to America a few times. And um, so, yeah, we were quite lucky in that regard. I've talked on other podcasts, more podcasts in relation to yeah performance and, and martial arts and how there's this sort of thing that um, you, you look at athletes from Eastern European countries or countries, I guess, that are perceived to be a little bit worse off. And it's like, oh, you know, these hard environments where people grow up, they re really breed this toughness. And uh, and I think my, some of that's true, but I think some of it's a bit of a, a crock of shit and a bit of a, yeah, you you, you, you see like, uh, what's those intro videos, um, what are they called, um, for, for big fights and, and you show where that person's grown up in and it's like Dagestan where a lot of like top mixed martial artists come from and, and uh, Siberia and things. and, and it's sort of to make this rags to riches story, but it's only because that makes it a good story. And and you know those parts of the world, yes, maybe they're, they're not as um, well off as other parts of the, the the world, but they also have extremely good coaches and and a very strong culture of of success in specific sports. And I think that's a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, even though I had a, you know, a fairly you know, very comfortable upbringing, I don't think that that made me any less determined to succeed and and you know quite the opposite especially in terms of you know business and sport are maybe a little bit different but but in a lot of ways the same but I'd see how hard dad worked and you know I saw what was was required to succeed in in anything and I sort of got that that sort of fighting spirit in terms of a business sense from him um at the same time though I'd, I remember because he would you know work long hours at the office and then he'd come home and then yeah he'd have dinner and he'd typically fall asleep in front of the news uh he'd have to watch the news if you missed the news something drastic would happen but then he'd inevitably fall asleep while watching the news and then he'd get up and then go back up to the office and do a couple of hours and and I can remember thinking ah, I don't want to do that I don't want to become a business person um yeah 
I'm just going to become a physio instead and yeah, end up uh, running a physio business and probably yeah, working even harder than my dad did. Got that understanding of hard work and, and work ethic from my parents. Uh, my brother is five years younger than me and um, he was even more athletically gifted than me, but just spread it over a greater variety of different sports. So he he did a lot of different, his main sport as he got into, he, when he specialized later in high school was rowing, but he did karate when he was five. And if he had kept going, he would have been much better than me. He had a natural gift for it. And I started karate around eight. I guess, sorry, go back a step. I started playing guitar when I was seven. And I think uh, you asked for some photos and I sent you some photos. One of them was me with my guitar and doing my best rock star pose. And I sort of focusing on both like uh, karate and music, they were sort of my two big passions. And I did want to do something with either one of them career-wise. So depending on where I was in my childhood, the karate path might have been become a champion and then you know, become a Murphy star. And then later that drifted towards become a champion, but combine that with the sports science side of physiotherapy. And that that all sort of worked in quite well. The other path was the music path. And I could could have seen myself going down the path of you know becoming a musician. There was probably just a, a aspect of security. If I was to go to university, become a physiotherapist, I could always have a secure job. Music seemed a little less secure. And I can remember I had a great music teacher who was an incredible guitarist. But then before he became a full-time guitar teacher, he was an electrician and he ended up having to shut down his guitar teaching because it wasn't really paying the bills. And he ended up having to go back to working as a tradesman. I think my parents sort of saw that and then I sort of understood it's like, oh, that's not good. Maybe if you're lucky enough to write a few hit songs, you can obviously do very well out of music, but the average musician is probably struggling uh, in terms of you know, career direction and, and finances and all that. So I think I was already starting to think maybe like the, the sports science and physiotherapy side was a little bit more secure. And then 1994, I was sort of probably more into the music just in, from an enjoyment perspective and what I was doing and I was still competing and I hadn't had that breakout competition at that stage, but then I went along to the Victorian championships. And at that stage, there was a lot of kids competing and I didn't go in with great expectations, but I ended up winning the tournament fairly easily. And I think this is some of, some of the best fights I've had in my life have been where the expectation hasn't been too high. I haven't put too much pressure on myself. And this was one of, this was the first time that this happened. And so after that, it sort of just flipped and I think this is, it's not necessarily reinvention, but it's very, a very pivotal moment in my sort of development towards what I ended up doing. But after winning that tournament, the karate definitely started taking a, a much higher priority over the music. And then I basically kept winning. I won several state titles and the national titles uh, as a kid. And then by the end, as I went into my last couple of years of school, I still did music as a subject through to my second last year of school and then sort of focused on sciences and, and the things that needed to do to get into um, physiotherapy because it was a very competitive course in Australia. It's a very popular profession. So um, to get into it, the marks required are very high, so I had to work very hard. I also studied Mandarin Chinese because my school didn't offer Japanese, but I knew I wanted to go to Japan. So I was like, well, I may as well study Chinese and, and try and get a, a hold on the country. Managed to get into physiotherapy and then I took a year off after finishing school and then came out to Japan and, and trained full time. 
then went back and uh, did my four-year university degree. And then um, and at that stage, within those four years, I'd had two knee reconstructions and I could already see like even though I was like 23 at the time, there was the decline in my you know, physical capacity had already started. It's like, man, I don't know how much longer I can do this at a high level. So let's make a you know, solid crack at that and we can focus on physio later. And uh, and so, yeah, 23, that's when I moved to Japan with a three-year plan. And uh, yeah, that was 19 years ago. And you're Kyokushin as well. You're Kyokushin Karate too, right? Nick obviously talked a lot about his mentor, uh, Masoyama, who passed away in 1994. And after that, the organization initially split into two and then it split into a lot of different factions. And there's a lot of politics, which I think happens in a lot of different martial arts and, and sporting bodies in general. But it's really, it's it's sort of not disintegrated, but it's, it's it split Kyokushin up into so many different factions. So our organization is, I think by membership, the either the first or, or second. I think it was the second biggest organization for a while. I'm, I think it's the biggest now, but it's called Shin Kyokushin. So there's a lot of legal battles over the, the trademark of the name Kyokushin in the 2000s. And so in 2003, our organization just said, look, we don't want to go through this anymore. So let's just do what we can in terms of trademarks, change it just enough that we don't have to go through this shit anymore. And uh, so I changed uh, the name to Shin Kyuk Shin and we changed all the logos and the, and the branding. And and initially, a lot of people, a lot of people left the organization because they didn't seem, they didn't feel that it was true to what they felt was the vision of Kyuk Shin. But then since then, a lot of people have come back and more people have come over because it wasn't so much about the name. It was about the values of what the organization stood for. And plus our, our president, Midori Shihan was the last world champion before uh, Masoyama passed away, and he's an extremely popular person and extremely personable, and uh, and so he's drawn. He's basically yeah, created this this very successful organization. But yes, it's the same style. So, what do you think? So, you mentioned there about the Eastern European countries, and I always, I, I never really, I always got the sense that they were just coached really hard, and that there were probably fewer restrictions on how you can treat people. <laughs> in those countries as well. But I'm interested to know, what do you think makes a great coach? That's a really good question. And this is personal, a personal question as well, obviously. <laughs> yeah, um, it's difficult because, like, to be honest, when I was in Japan, I didn't really have, because I, I was a little bit of, a, not jump from dojo to dojo, but I was training at a couple of different places. Different dojos? yeah. Dojos are the place where people train for martial arts, right? Yeah, so I was training at a couple of different dojos, and and because of that, I wasn't really a, a, a strong part of the culture of of one. Do- I mean, there was two dojos that were well, three initially, and then down to two. So I had people that were coaching me, but but no one I really considered a, a, a coach per se. And I think part of that was also the I was a little bit arrogant, and I felt like. I needed people to spar with and I needed people to hold mitts and do all that sort of stuff. But then I felt like I knew better in terms of, especially in terms of like strength and conditioning and that side. Like I didn't, I managed all that side myself and, and even like technical and tactical stuff. I probably didn't put as much time into the, yeah, tech into um, not tactical, but the strategic and, and uh, tactical side of fighting as I, I, I relied mainly on sort of physicality and technicality, which is, is, been highlighted even more in the last year when I've been practicing Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is incredibly tactical and strategic. 
and it does require like technicality and physicality as well, but it's it's much more strategic. And so that I has sort of highlighted how that was a hole in my game when I was growing up. And then as a coach myself, like again, I, I'm I'm not sure I'm even the best coach. Like a lot of the the children that I teach are not at the level where I feel like I'm able to apply my what what I feel would be my skills in terms of coach, in terms of like yeah, technical instruction, because you can only do so much with with kids. It's their hobbies, maybe. Exactly. Yeah. Is their hobbies. Yeah, exactly. So when you look at the coaches that you have at Club 360 or that you've had, or the coaches that the people you admire have had, what do you think are the qualities that they bring to the table that make them make champions? Definitely an ability to think critically and be able to change the way that you do things. I think a, a coach that's stuck in their ways and not willing to change uh, probably won't be very successful. Um, obviously having an understanding of the athlete or the person in front of you and really having an understanding of, I guess, more superficially from a like technical or, or physical execution perspective, you know, how they respond to different verbal cues or physical cues or demonstration you know how someone's learning style is and but then also being attuned to what motivates someone and having an understanding of when someone is in the right sort of mindset to to work really hard or or when they're struggling and need to to you know to back off as to as not to to you know overtrain or overload um i think those are all really important things so true that overloading piece for me it's emotional overload if i if i see my clients kind of in emotional overload if i keep trying to coach then it's a disaster <laughs> when you've hired coaches in or you've seen had other coaches what do you think is the sign of a poor coach then like when have you thought oh i think i might need to manage this person out the business oh it's a bit of a sensitive topic maybe not that when have you had a coach that's not very, very good yourself? Or what What do you think are the qualities that aren't good? Coming with the hard questions today, Sam, sorry. <laughs> yeah. For me, like energy level is important. So you've, someone is coming to you to, you know, improve their physical wellness and, and like say emotional wellness. And if your, if your energy level doesn't sort of match or is a, a little bit higher than them, then they're sort of robbing energy from you, which or you're sort of rubbing energy from them, sorry, and which isn't the way that that transaction is meant to happen. So energy level and, and that sort of is reflected in like that posture and body language and and even like the way that you dress and the way that you carry yourself. I think that's really important. And yeah, obviously having baseline level of competency and knowledge and the willingness to continue to learn is important. Um, and I I put a maybe a higher value on that than other people. And and it's a little bit difficult to, to tell because owning a business that employs coaches, there's more to, you know, you, you, someone might be a really good coach but not the best employee. And so that that becomes a little bit difficult as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. What did my, fr- my friend says? No genius assholes. <laughs> which I think is such an interesting employment thing. So 
Love it. Thanks, Sam. That's so useful for, for people to hear what, what a good and bad coach looks like, especially from your perspective. But I'd like to take off the sportsman's hat and put on the businessman's hat now and just ask you about how you started up Club 360 and what where did that vision and mission come from and how did you manifest it and how did you make it come to life? That's a huge reinvention. <laughs> yeah, so that that's obviously so the biggest reinvention of my life. Um, always not always, but I mean, I guess as I went to Japan for the first time, and then as I went through my physio studies, I, I always thought that I would try to combine physio, fitness, and martial arts in some way. But I didn't think it would be in Japan. I think Japan for me was a place that I was going to spend most of my competitive career. But I didn't really think of it as as more than that. My plan was to stay until the 2007 World Championships, but then I didn't really get to the level that I uh, didn't succeed as well as I hoped in that tournament. So I decided to stay at least for a little bit longer, if not through to the 2011 World Championships, which I was sort of thinking would be around where, when I would retire. I ended up having my third knee surgery in 2009, and my surgeon's like, yeah, you, you probably don't want to do this for too much longer at this level. I also met Lani in 2009, and then by the end of that year, she and uh, her brother Nathan, who is my business partner, um, they set up a beauty salon. So she'd started this new business. And so it was at that stage, if this was going to become a serious relationship, then I'm not leaving in 2011 because, you know, she started up this new business. So it got to 2011. And um, that stage, I thought I would be retiring at the end of the year. I didn't know really what would happen after that. At that time, I was working at Tokyo Physio. It was another expat physiotherapy practice. And I came back for our selection tournament for, this was going to be my, our final, my final fight in Australia to select the team. And, and look, I wasn't too concerned about being selected. There was one other high-level fighter. I'd beaten him the last two times and, and they were sending, I think, three representatives. So I wasn't worried about qualifying, but I wanted to just absolutely crush this tournament and go out uh, and have everyone remember that performance. So I went back to Australia. This was March uh, 2011, and the tournament was on the Sunday. And on the Friday, I was driving down. So I was driving from Ballarat to Melbourne, where the the championships were. I was going to stay there a couple of nights before the tournament. And then I turned on the radio while I'm driving down there was a news break that there had been this earthquake and subsequent tsunami in Japan. So I got that, I drove for another um, you know, half an hour or so, got to the city, turned on the TV, and it was all over the news, and then tried to call Lani and couldn't get in touch. All the phone lines were down and eventually got in touch with um, through one of the apps at that stage. And and it was pretty scary. Like, um, yeah, already there was talk about the nuclear reactors and all that sort of stuff, and and everyone was freaking out. And and so I fought on Sunday, and I still won the tournament, but I didn't really perform. I wasn't really there. Um, I was very flat. Um, the fact that I was able to still win a national tournament at probably like thirty percent capacity was sort of, I think, a, a sign of where I was at that stage. Anyway, but. I was meant to fly back Monday morning and then I spoke to Lani on Sunday and she said, no, don't, I'm going to try and get out. So she flew out that day or the day later and then we met up in Sydney at her parents' place and spent uh, two weeks there. And during that time, I don't know, I just sort of started thinking a little bit differently about life and about 
everything. And uh, and I'd sort of decided, you know, I wanted to step away from Tokyo Physio and do my own thing. But my own thing was like, I'm just going to get a, a small room and I'm just going to see clients out of, you know, a similar, even a smaller setup than Tokyo Physio had. And then it started to between, like that was March, between March and then the end of the year, it just started to like, Nathan's like, oh, maybe just have a little bit of a bigger area where we could put in a squat rack and I can use it maybe for some of my clients and work something out. And then and then it just got bigger and bigger. And then Nathan at that stage was looking at doing the white collar boxing event. And so it's like, well, maybe if we can get an even bigger place, we can do. What's the white collar boxing event? Yeah. So Nathan and uh, a couple of his friends started up the executive fight night, which is a boxing event mostly for people with minimal experience in boxing. They basically train for for 12 weeks and then they fight in front of the crowds, usually about 500 people at uh, the Grand Hyatt in in Rapongi at a black tie dinner. And it's a fundraiser. The first few years they did it, it was, uh, they went through a couple of different charities, but for the last several years, it's been to raise money for Shine on Kids, which is a kid's cancer charity. So he was looking, getting that started. And he's like, well, maybe we just get a, a fucking massive place and we can do everything. It's like, all right, cool. Do you know what? Can I just say here, this is hilarious. I'm like, you were building your castle. It's like your dad with the bricks. And now I'm going to build a castle. <laughs> yeah, that was what it was. Build a castle. <laughs> and we had looked at a couple of places that were like 150, 200 square meters, which were just on our budget. We had some private investors at that time and and we sort of had enough cash to maybe do what we wanted to do. And um, if it was to go well, like we didn't, we're hitting the ground running with very little left in the bank. We were confident with our reputation. Like Nathan already had a solid client base um, and then I had a reputation. I wasn't taking clients from Tokyo Physio, but I had enough of a reputation to start. And we also had um, Ingrid Davis, who was another physiotherapist who also was was quite well known within the British school community, and she um, she was confident of bringing a lot of clients in. So we were looking at these smaller places, and we actually got rejected on a couple of places. And we went back like a couple of years later, and those places were still vacant. It's like these people would, you know, rather miss out on tens of millions of yen than have a foreigner, a foreign owned company in there. But anyway, that's Japan. And then one day Nathan calls me out and says, "Oh, look, I found a place. It's." It could be perfect, but it's a lot bigger and a lot more expensive than what we've been looking at. We came in here and had a look and, you know, this would been looking at places around 200 square metres. This was 400 square metres. And so, you know, we could do so much with this. Let's just do it. Um, and so, yeah, we, we took the plunge. And so, so I had my last fight in October 2011. We sort of started looking for properties before the end of the year. Um, we got the keys to Club 360. Well, we got the keys to the, the building in... August 2012. Then we started construction in November, started bringing in current clients in January, and then we had our official opening April 2013. So it's been, we had our 10-year anniversary, um, which you came along to, Sarah, which we appreciate, in, in April this year. So I guess that, I mean, the transition there was, um, it was so fast and so, uh, and and. I think because it was so quick and so dramatic, I think that made it easier because if I had a transition from going from being a competitor to just going to continuing to be a a physiotherapist and, you know, maybe 
having slightly different fitness goals or continuing to do karate, whatever it wouldn't have. I think that would have been a really difficult transition. I retired in October. I proposed to Lani in November. I started, I, and so I actually, well, I may as well just start my master's as well. So I started my master's. Uh, I applied for my master's uh, before the end of the year, started that the next uh, the next next year in, in February, and then started looking for spaces for Club 360. And that all happened within the, the space of a, a month or two. So I think it was just a dramatic, all right, I'm, I'm not an athlete anymore. Now I'm going to be a, a husband, business owner, going back to school. And yeah, I think that in a way that dramatic change was really useful. But I say that, you know, I, I made this dramatic change out of being an athlete, but I'm still making that transition and still having trouble with it because I talked about this on my podcast when I had uh, I had a friend interview me, which was uh, a complete ripoff of your idea when you had uh, Angela interview you. I, I did the same oh, thing. I- Oh, well, you know, I hate those. I hate those. I hate those so much. But you thought it was all right, right? I was fun. Yeah, I was fun. But what I talked about, and then, I mean, when you're a competitive athlete, like your whole life revolves around being better than other people. Like you can talk about, you know, self-improvement and working on different parts of your physicality and in your game. But at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is whether you are better than your opposition. And that's okay. That's part of the environment. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going into world championships, there's no point getting like encouragement awards. You're, you're there to win. And if you don't win, you failed. If you got second in the world, you f- and I got fourth in the world, which was a, an amazing achievement at the time, but I still wasn't the champion. That's really the only thing that matters. So to, to take that away, which is your, your, your sole drive, um, and then try to do other things in life, it's really difficult and it's really difficult not to apply that mentality of I own this business, which our main goal is to just help people be healthier, help people achieve their their health and performance goals, help people get out of pain. But to, to, to do all that and not think, yeah, but I want to be better than the other gym that's what I'm doing. I want to, want to be better than the other physio place. That's still there. And that's like, I'm, I can't get rid of that. You just need to balance that and challenge it in the right ways. I think that has been the hardest part of that whole sort of transition or reinvention, uh, as you call it, just letting go of that desire and that need to be better than everyone because it still drives me in terms of like I still want to be the best clinician. If they all of a sudden decided to to fly you know, physios from around the world to compete in a, a best physio in the world competition, I'd still want to win. Like I want my knowledge and, and abilities to be better than others. And and sometimes I've got to question myself. It's like, do I want that so that every client that comes to see me will get the best possible outcome that that anyone can offer them at that time? Or is it still a little bit of ego driving that that, you know, I want to know something that, you know, the physio down the road doesn't. And sometimes I'm I'm not sure. I, I do think that my intentions are sort of more pure, but sometimes I, I do have to question myself. You do have to have a little word with yourself. Well, therapy is very good in that regard. <laughs> Love all of that. Amazing. Do you and Nathan have a good healthy kind of competition then competitive nature between you? Like, I love some of the funny reels that you're running at the moment. Like you've got some funny videos where you take the piss out of certain aspects of health and wellness, or you've got your, you've got your people like putting little towels on themselves and... <laughs> 
<laughs> pretending to do like massive lifts. Do you and Nathan, your business partner, have a healthy competition? I don't think so. Not that there's, uh, I think we have a very healthy business relationship. I mean, there's not much that we don't agree on. There is stuff that we don't. It's, it's most of the time fairly trivial. I don't think that we're really competitive with each other. I don't think that we have the need to be. Like we have different fitness goals. I mean, mine's sort of more performance related and related to martial arts and his is sort of more body comp and general health. There wouldn't be a competition to who, who's doing best as a trainer. I don't think that would make any sense. Like if there were holes in each other's games, we would try to improve each other. Yeah, I can't see myself being that competitive with Nathan and even in sort of lifestyle, like he, you know, he lives his life one way and and I did like, it's funny because my older siblings that I described before are incredibly competitive. Like they've all done well business-wise and so they're, they're all you know, quite wealthy, but they almost compete with each other in terms of like one will buy a holiday house in a certain area and then the other will buy a more expensive holiday house and then and then they'll do it in another area of like we find that quite funny um but I'm not like that with with Nathan and I'm not like that with my younger brother Nick either interesting so and the other thing I wanted to mention here you mentioned somebody called Lani a couple of times and that's your wife and Nathan's sister right and the other thing I wanted to mention was that a lot of people who were in Japan around the time is the massive impact that uh, 2011 had on everybody how it just changed our lives so radically I think three or four people who were in Japan at the time talked about that too and looking for those massive reinventions that one of the questions here is what's a crash that forced a reinvention and that could be one of those things where something major happens and it forces reinvention it forces you to think of things differently so you've kind of brought us up to date on all of this and I love how you've just talked so openly about being competitive because now that gives me permission and my listeners permission to be more competitive as well so I just absolutely love that you said that so I want to just land now then what there are many ways to lead a life Sam what does that mean to you yeah, and this is the, the most difficult question. I guess I'd maybe just going back to the earthquake, yes, that, that was a, a crash. I think just talking logistically, I think that if, if the, we didn't get into a property market that was down after the earthquake, we probably couldn't have afforded to start where we were working. So we got a very, very, very good deal. We opened up our second location, which you've been to. We're paying interesting per square meter, about double uh, there, what we're paying here. So we got an extremely good deal and we're still keep like the, the landlord's putting it up. We're refusing to go up by what he wants to go up by. But if that didn't happen, we probably wouldn't have started this. So I think that that, that, that crash and, and actually what crash has led to reinvention was one of your questions. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of the the earthquake as, um, as being that and, and, Actually, when uh, we had Lani interview Nathan and myself for the Club 360 anniversary episode of the podcast, uh, episode 100, we talked about that. Like Nathan was going to do a similar thing as to Club 360. He was actually going to do it with my my boss at the time at Tokyo Physio, but he didn't do it because of the global financial crisis, which happened you know, three three years earlier. So that came in and stopped him from doing it there. So that was sort of a crash that maybe prevented something happening. And then we, and then we sort of essentially things happened in that time. And, you know, I ended up 
meeting and then marrying his sister. And then there was another crash, which actually was a better crash that allowed us to get in at the right time and, and then do what we've done. So just, yeah, I, I wanted to go back to that. But I think, so to be honest with you, I'm, I'm sort of going through what I feel is not a, a massive reinvention in terms of like, yeah, going from um, being a potter to owning a, a motel. But I am sort of trying to like reinvent myself a little bit. And it has been off the back of, I guess, a, a little more minor crash. But I had a, a staff member leave and sort of completes the full circle, actually go to Tokyo Physio uh, in the last month. This is really, um, we've had people leave in the past and, and you know, I think like you talked about, yeah, the coaches, well, you know, there's some people that you want to push out of the business. A lot of people that have left in the past have either left because they've left the country and, and it's just been a, a life thing for them or they've left because they haven't been a good fit and there have been people that we we probably wouldn't have wanted to keep anyway. This person wasn't that. So this is person. This was a person that um, you know was liked and was doing good work here. So the fact that they left, and this has sort of been something that had been building with me anyway. It's really questioned my priorities in terms of being a business owner and my my leadership style, and also just my my personality in in a way, which is that is the, that's the hardest part of it. In the exit meeting and sort of follow up meetings I've had with people, it's been. The feedback I've got that is I'm not a particularly welcoming person, that I'm also don't appear that I am open feedback. And I've sort of pushed people a bit harder to give me feedback in in recent times. And then their response has been, oh, I'm, I'm quite surprised with how well you've taken on feedback but what would make you think otherwise? And, and they're just like, I don't know, it's just a vibe. And that, that's like the the most fucking unuseful thing to do. It's like, it's just a vibe. How do I change this vibe? But instead of just art, talking to different people and trying to dig a little bit deeper into this, you know, some of the things that I think make me good at what I do. And, and this is, I've read about the, you know, the idea of your strengths, if they're too strong, becoming weaknesses. Like I understand that I'm a very intense person that, when I've got a person in front of me, when I'm working one-to-one with a client, I think I'm a very empathetic person and I'm 100% focused on them. And I think most people I'd like to think interpret me as being relatively warm and definitely like caring and focusing on their needs and their their goals and and um, and addressing their, their issue. But I think if people are seeing me, other people within our facility seeing me, I've often got my head buried in the laptop and I'm... And maybe I apparently don't smile very often, which I don't think is true, but so many people have told me that, that it must be true, right? Yeah, if if I'm having a conversation with my staff, sometimes I'm doing it over my laptop. And and for me, like, I know multitasking gets a bad rap, but I'm very, I feel like I'm very good at multitasking in terms of being able to do things effectively. Now, whether it's done in the right way or not, I, I think it's probably, you know, not the way that I do it, but I can have a conversation with someone and Lani understands this and Lani's fine with it. But for a lot of other people, I can talk to you while I'm typing and do it. And I can, I can give the response that I would give if I wasn't on my laptop, but I guess the way that that's perceived is not good. And so, and then I've been told that I always seem stressed. And again, I, I am stressed a lot of the time, but I don't know why that makes me less likely to accept feedback. I'm stressed because I am trying to do a lot of things and I'm trying to do things better. And if you can tell me something that I can do better, I'll do it. But apparently I'm not open to that feedback. 
I, I don't spend enough time out in space and, and and just laptop closed and talking to people, whether it is clients like other people's clients or um, or staff members. And and like I'll have a go at people, you know, the people that are being paid on an hourly basis. Obviously, their their main priority is to see clients and to do the great work coaching or whatever they're doing. But also, like if you're not doing that, then you should be you know, creating social media content, contributing to marketing and, and cleaning and, and helping. But if you're sitting around and connecting and building a, a strong bond with your coworkers, to me, that still seems like a bit of a waste of time. Even though I know that that is important for me, like my big quote is that time is an asset and we need to use our time as to, to you know, try and oh. improve things uh, in the business that are then going to lead to greater revenue and, and our ability to pay our staff more. But I guess that the, the overall overarching theme is that I'm missing a bit of that human element. And so that is is sort of sparked what I'm trying. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, and if there's specific things that I'm talking like one of my staff gave me the feedback that when I'm closing a session with a client, I'm at the side of reception and I've got my laptop open and then I'll say to a receptionist, Rolfa, I would like to see Julie in in uh, a week's time and uh, blah, 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 okay. Uh, and and uh, Julie, uh, Rolf will help you out. And then I'll just continue to type my notes. And for me, like note-taking and, and um, the, the paperwork side of things is real. I need to keep detailed notes because I have a terrible memory. And if I don't write down everything that happened in the session, the next time I see that client, I'm not going to be able to provide the service that they deserve if I don't have that information there. And so if I am not keeping up with my note-taking and the programming, because I'm I'm very, I send my clients emails after every session, very thorough like that. And I think that, again, that's part of what I think makes me a good physiotherapist and have good outcomes with, with clients. But if I'm behind on that, then that stresses me out. And for me to be behind on that, but then be able to close my laptop and just have a nice open conversation is is so difficult. Wow. You're really learning a lot about yourself. You're learning a lot about yourself, Sam, doesn't it? It's le- you're learning a lot about the many ways to lead a life. And you're learning a lot about what we call systems coaching. <laughs> yeah, I think, the, I think basically I, j- I just need a good coach. Do you know anyone? Call me. <laughs> but um, seriously, though, what, what you're describing there is that, well, there's you, there's the other person, and then there's actually your own relationship. It's called, we call it the third entity, that all the stuff you've told me here, I mean, I could literally start coaching you now, but I'm not going to, but um, <laughs> is... Um, I'd have to pay you first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but between, you're free half an hour. Between the two of us, or like it's easier to put in terms of a marriage. So there's you, there's Alana, and then there's the marriage itself. And the marriage itself has a life of its own. And that is actually as strong as any individual input into it. So no matter what you think your side of things is, there's actually the other person's side of things. And it's not a battle between those two things. There's a third entity as well between you and that person. There's a third entity that exists between you and all the people who exist in Club 360. And what? And if that is full of stress and whatever it is, or anyway, both parties would describe it differently. That's what I'm hearing here. It's like, oh, I want to do a third entity exercise with Sam. I'm not going to, but that's, that's what I... Uh, that's what I'm hearing. And then you have to learn from the third entity. You know, you can ask that third entity, what what do you need from me to make this relationship in right relationship? 
And that third entity doesn't speak from you. It speaks from itself. And it might be like, slow down, take a moment. You don't have to send detailed emails every time. You don't have to be the best one or whatever it is. That's me projecting there what you told me before. <laughs> Sorry, Sam, that was an un, 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 uh, un, un, uncalled for tiny coaching session there. <laughs> I love it. That's great. Mm. It's a good, good plug. I think that the many ways to lead a life, I mean, I found this question difficult to answer. I think I think that for me, it was like there's many different there's many different ways to function in a working environment, and I think just understanding one's ways of working. Like I'm a very much a a list task oriented person, and so we had uh, we have we had it was it sort of have some people use we have a like a system like Slack where people have tasks and then they're basically ticking off. And, and for me, like that is what I was told that we don't like people, too many people congregating around the entrance because if a new client comes in, maybe it's a little intimidating. I have come to realize that one of the reasons I don't like it is because I see people congregate and know they're not, they're not working. So I think that's impacted my, because we haven't really had any, I haven't had any like direct feedback from clients saying oh, I was a bit intimidated walking in because there was a a bunch of pretty friendly people in the, like, I mean, but some of it's, you know, a lot of our staff based on what we do are pretty big, strong athletic males and that may intimidate people. They're all very friendly. One of my staff was saying like, this is, this, this makes, when we're happy workers, our clients are getting the best of us. And we're happy when we are enjoying the company of our co-workers and and interacting and for me it's like okay that's because I didn't think about what makes me happy it was going into my my task thing and ticking ticking getting that little bit of dopamine hip hit every time I tick things off finishing off my notes and making sure that I'm up to date with all the and and that I have an empty email but and that makes me so much more happier than like spending time with people like that's and that's just the way that I function anyway <laughs> Turns out this this system is very unpopular, and um, and people don't like like they call it micromanaging. It might be micromanaging for me. It's it's it doesn't feel like micromanaging because it's all out there. I'm not having to if people are seeing what's on the list to do, doing it, then I don't have to follow up. Like it's all a, a well run oiled system. But again, that's just the, that's the way that I function and. I guess it's a little bit contradictory because I know that there's many ways to lead a life and there's many ways to operate in a working environment. I'm just having, still having trouble sort of coming to terms with that. Um, so that's sort of part of my reinvention is to try and get a greater understanding of that and, and figure out how I can appreciate that and make that work in our company. Awesome. You're amazing. Thank you so much for um, sharing that with us. That was just really um frank and really open and I really appreciate it you've really perfectly answered that like there are many ways to lead a life and when I could hear you going ah in there we call that edge behavior which means you're crossing over a difficult edge from who you are now to accepting the many ways there are to lead a life and knowing that on that second side of the edge you might have to adjust things a little bit which is kind of especially if you love having things a certain way so I heard your edge behavior and bravo for like skirting the edge and good luck with that. And if you do need a coach, call me. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I might. <laughs> <laughs> so Sam, let's wrap up now. 
I actually did ask your wife to be on the show as well, but she said she was boring. And so I said, well, I'm not going to push you. <laughs> yeah, she's a bit boring. So I'm just kidding. No, I think she'd be great. <laughs> uh, I don't. I think she'd be great as well because... because Nathan, Nathan will be terribly boring. <laughs> but uh, but I think yeah, I'll, I'll um no it's I'll fine it's fine think, it's fine it's fine I have I have a full roster but I just thought it'd be quite fun to have you then her but we'll 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 see I'll, I'm sure I'll persuade her in the future for another season so thank you so much Sam this has been absolutely brilliant you've been so generous with everything you've 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 offered here it's been easy it's always fun interviewing other podcasters because they know how to give so much that lovely combination of spontaneity, but also being like prepared as well is really wonderful. And I really, really appreciate it. So where can we find you? Well, we'll link to you in the show notes, but I'd just love listeners to hear where they can find you. Where would you like people to go and follow you, et cetera? I guess in terms of social media, um, uh, Instagram uh, at Sam underscore Gilbert underscore Tokyo Sports Med. Um, and that's a little bit of everything. It's a, a, a quite a lot about my family life, Club 360 stuff, a bit of my martial arts, and yeah, a bit of everything else. That's social media wise. The podcast again. This has come out of this reinvention. I'm actually going to do what what you've done, Sarah, and take a bit of a hiatus from the podcast because this was sort of part of the realization is that for me, you know what I like to do to contribute to the business is sort of work on marketing, doing things like the podcast to try and generate more awareness around our business. But what I need to do is, is just be a better boss and connect more with my staff. So that's really the focus for the next at least six months. So I'm going to put the podcast on hiatus, but however, for people who haven't listened to the podcast before, there's still 109 episodes of the, the main show which uh, I've interviewed um, a range of guests, probably 70 or 80% of it is, is health and wellness related. But then I've had just people that I know are, have good content for, um, you know, foreign English speaking people living in Japan, like like yourself, Sarah. Although there are people like, like yourself does sort of cross over into the health because of, of what you do. So we have, all of those are up on Instagram. So we have a separate um, Tokyo Living Podcast Instagram page. They're also on YouTube and also on the normal um, audio podcast sites, your, your Apple and, and iTunes, Spotify and so forth. And then, yeah, Club 360 on Instagram, Club 360 underscore English or Club 360 underscore JP if you're uh, after Japanese content. And then if you are interested in you know, any of our uh, actual services at Club 360, so um, whether it's personal training, group fitness, physiotherapy, massage, boxing, we have kids programs, including the, the karate classes that I teach, then yeah, check us out on Instagram or our website, which will be updated. Uh, we're going to have a brand new website in the new year with uh, actually switching over all our our booking systems to be tied into one. So the, the website, the, the CRM and everything. Um, so we're going to have much better online booking system and, and uh, personalized app, which we will hopefully use to, to just be you a know, strengthen the community. So that's really uh, exciting. So um, yeah, but check out the website and um, yeah, the, the facilities, we've got um, two locations, both in central Tokyo in Motazabu and Higashiazabu. Um, we've also got satellite, physiotherapy practices at Tokyo Medical and Surgical and the Bluff Clinic in Yokohama. And then, yeah, if you're after any facials, waxing, massage, nails, uh, lashes, uh, et cetera, et cetera, then check out Alana Jade. We'd get in trouble if I didn't give her a plug. <laughs> 
pre-pandemic, I used to go there all the time and then I had to do it all myself and I never got back into the habit of going oh. back. And what was I going to say? Don't, if you stop in the the podcast, remember you, you've still got to scratch that itch of being a movie star, which a little bit the podcast does, right? You get to be the kind of interviewer and stuff. So, so look out for scratching that itch as well. And we've both interviewed somebody called Chuck Johnson, who also has transitioned into films, right? So it's just so interesting. All these things come together. You should be in one of his films. Get in one of his films. <laughs> I don't think I can move. Like, I've seen the stuff that he does, and uh, I don't think I'm that acrobatic. Uh, with no, my, no, it's a bit mad, isn't it? And stuff it's now. a bit mad. Um, no, anyway. Was, well, interestingly, because, I mean, the, the, the guitar going back to my dad again i you know inherited his hard work and all but i think i also inherited his artistic side as well which came out in the music and then i think that the the podcast and and some of the other stuff that i do social media wise in terms of content and creation is i think scratches that artistic itch it's definitely something that i don't want to let go of one of our coaches is actually started up a, a YouTube uh, page for us. So we've been now focusing more on YouTube than any of our other. Um, so, so that's actually another, if you're interested in sort of health and fitness and rehab information, then check out uh, Club360 on YouTube. But I am doing a little bit of that. So that is scratching a little bit of that itch, which is has been fun as well. But um, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sam. And thanks everybody for listening to this in season seven. It will be the first launch podcast of 2024 and i'm so happy to have had you some thanks a lot bye everybody all right thanks sarah thanks everyone for listening thank you so much for listening to these creative musings and stories of reinvention and if it's guests week big love and gratitude to our guests go follow them everywhere shout out to laura maroshima for her podcast management and support I would love if you would follow and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and share with a friend you think would love or benefit from it. You can also find me at Sarah Brewer Creative on Facebook and Instagram and get on my occasional, very occasional newsletter list at sarahbrewer.com. I just love that you're here and I'll catch you the next time on the Legends Podcast. Rise like a phoenix, baby. And don't forget to take other people with you. Bye.